HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a Greenhorns partner and nonprofit that has helped hundreds of farmers raise over $2 million in microloans, all without charging any interest or fees. Find out more at us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, and in this case, uh, young wild craft seaweed harvesters. Welcome to the show, Amanda Swimmer. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Do you want to introduce yourself and the environment that you work in? I would love to. I, my name is Amanda Swinimer, and 15 years ago I started my own business, Dakini Tidal Wilds, wild harvesting seaweeds. I live on the west coast of Vancouver Island in the temperate rainforest, and it's absolute paradise here, and I absolutely passionately love what I do. <laughs> so... Some of our listeners are, most of our listeners are land-based agrarians. Um, Could you give a little bit of an explanation of the marine ecology and what percentage of it is edible and how those edible seaweeds grow and just kind of some basics about what it entails to harvest seaweed? Sure. So um, where I live, actually, we have the most seaweed diversity on the planet. We have over 650 kinds of seaweeds, and I'm still trying to learn them all. And a great variety of them are edible, and there's probably lots of other seaweeds that are edible that there's just no information on them yet. So I've definitely done some taste experimenting. And uh, like, you know, like land plants, Um, Some seaweeds are annuals, some are biennials, and then a handful of them are perennials. So most of the seaweeds um, 
that I harvest for food are actually annuals, so they die off in the fall and the winter. And then once you harvest them, what do you do? Well, I, depending on the species, I harvest very different ways. So uh, one of the number one rules of sustainability with any seaweed is to harvest by a pruning method. Um, seaweeds are among the fastest growing things on the planet, so if you just give them a little haircut or prune them, then they'll keep growing and keep reproducing, and you can actually harvest from the same seaweed multiple times in the season. So the two that I harvest for my business, um, one of them you can only harvest at the very lowest tides. It uh, doesn't float, so you have to wait till a really good low tide. And then I go out and I wait about maybe waist deep and um, prune them along. And then I haul them up in mesh bags, haul the seaweed up in mesh bags back to my seaweed drying shop. And then I hang each piece from cedar racks and then I have fans and dehumidifier to dry them. That's for the winged kelp. For the bull kelp, I suit up in my five millimeter wetsuit, hood, booties, uh, gloveys. I have mask fins and snorkel and I actually swim offshore maybe three to four hundred meters out to the kelp forests. Bull kelp is one of two species that that create the kelp forests, which the Pacific Northwest is quite well known for. And then the part of the bull kelp that I harvest actually floats on the surface. So I'll swim along and prune and trim and fill up my mesh bags. And then as I'm walking out of the ocean, the water drains out of the mesh bags and the seaweed's left behind. And the same as the winged kelp, I go back to my shop and I hang each piece from cedar racks until it's dry. And so you talk immediately about the sustainability of the harvest and obviously um, direct touching and hand hold, holding with your hand the hold fast and trimming gently and carefully are, are obvious factors. Can you just talk a little bit more about what some of the principles are and what some of the observations are after 15 years in the same territory, um, how you are learning as a steward of the commons what to take and not to take? Sure. It's, um, it's specifically with the winged kelp. I've been harvesting from a very small area for 15 years. And if someone were to come and rip up the seaweeds and not cut them, um, the garden would be gone immediately. So it's really important not to rip up the seaweed. So there's a few things with sustainability. Uh, Number one is to harvest by the pruning method that I was talking about. Um, Number two, know how that particular seaweed reproduces. Some seaweeds have separate reproductive structures. Uh, There's a huge diversity of how seaweeds reproduce. Um, So knowing that can be helpful. And if they do have separate reproductive structures, leaving those alone or at least being aware um, that that's what you're taking. Also, you want to see... lots of that species of seaweed growing in an area where you're going to be harvesting some. 
And then something that um, a lot of good-meaning people do, they'll take more um, than they can actually process when they get home. If you're not me and you don't have a whole drying shop devoted to the seaweed, it takes up a lot of space to hang it around, you know, inside your house and <laughs> things like that. So just making sure that that you're only taking what you can actually process when you get home is a good rule of thumb. Um, and so before we talk about, you know, why are people buying seaweed and what is the health benefit, can we talk a little more about who else is benefiting in the ecosystem that you're a part of and, you know, who else is diving in the waves out there with you and what role does the seaweed play um, for the for Mother Ocean? Well, before we even get into the, the creatures um, that make their home in the seaweed, uh, from an ecological standpoint, seaweed is absolutely crucial. And when I say seaweed, I'm now talking also about the microalgae. So algae produces most of the world's oxygen and fixes most of the world's carbon. A lot of people uh, don't realize that, um, but, but it is true. The rainforests are also important, but the algae is actually producing most of the oxygen that we need to breathe. So from an ecological standpoint, it's crucial. Also, it is the primary um, source in the ocean algae, seaweed, photosynthesize. So they are actually the primary source at the bottom of the food chain um, for the ocean. Uh, the salmon and the omega-3s and things like that, that's actually sourced originally from the algae and the seaweed. So very important that way. And then when we move into, when I talk about the bull kelp and the kelp forests, their kelp forests are essentially a nursery for so much um, invertebrates, crustaceans, uh, schooling fish, even certain types of salmon. It's If you're um, scuba diving or snorkeling in the Pacific Northwest and you come into the kelp forest, it's absolutely teeming with life. It's like an oasis of life out there. So very important um, for that. I've, I've got to see some pretty interesting creatures when I've been harvesting over the 15 years, so <laughs> it's always really fun. And the seaweed also is absorbing um, a lot of the nutrients that are washing off from the land. Isn't that true? I mean, yes. we, all, yes. we learn a lot uh, about eutrophication and industrial agriculture and nitrogen pollution in the Mississippi and other, other rivers reaching the fisheries and clogging up the ocean with um, algae blooms and then oxygen-starved water makes it hard for other species of fish. But in a, in a balanced world or even in an unbalanced world, uh, in the relative unbalance of the world that we live in, um, can we talk about nutrients in the seaweed? Yeah, for sure. And one of the... Um what you were talking about with the algae blooms, um, not only microalgae, but there's some species of seaweed that are opportunistic. And one good example is a very nice edible called um, sea lettuce. But sea lettuce is opportunistic, so if there's an abundance of nutrients 
it will outcompete the other seaweed species. And there's actually a phenomenon that happens so- somewhat regularly in Venice where um, the sea lettuce gr- overgrow because of an abundance of nutrients and they smother the oxygen, use up all the oxygen in the ocean, and then they, it dies. And there's a quite an infamous stench that can happen when that happens. But in the generally balanced part, and I'm very lucky where I live, the Pacific Northwest is quite pristine in terms of how oceans go. And uh, the seaweeds are amazing at concentrating the minerals around them. So depending on the species, there's different makeups, but seaweeds in general are the most concentrated food source of minerals on the planet. And these minerals are stored in forms that are very bioavailable for people, meaning it's very easy for us to absorb these minerals, and also very rich in vitamins as well. All the edibles that I harvest have vitamins A, B-complex C and E, and there's even a couple, including bull kelp, that have vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin. And so vitamin, um, a lot of these vitamins are in, are highly sought after by people who are focused on nutrition, and obviously the tradition of seaweed eating happened in the United States in a big way with the introduction of the macrobiotic diet that came um, with a lot of ferments and seasonal vegetables and seaweeds and a lot of Japanese influence um, as a result of kind of less nutritive land foods um, and and soil being depleted. Um, Will you talk a little bit about what, why people are so jazzed? I mean, obviously the Seagulls are very healthy, and that is an indicator to all of us that eating sea- right off of seaweed is probably a very good tactic for health. But could you maybe e- use more science words than that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. You know, when I started harvesting seaweed, it was really a passion of wild crafting and being in the ocean. And as I've... Um, grown and evolved in the seaweed world, I I now teach quite extensively, and it's the health benefits, we're learning new ones almost literally every day. Um, Just the the hyperabundance of minerals alone, and especially trace minerals that, like you said, are completely depleted from many areas of our soil now, just that alone is going to have tremendous health benefits. I mean, every process in our body is dependent on um, enzymes, which are made up all of different kind of unique minerals. So it's it's really uh, the mineral thing is huge, and it, the seaweeds, the balance that they've created in that is also really important. Um, uh, particularly the kelps, they have about seven um, minerals that are in a ratio that's almost identical to human blood. So just some real fascinating stuff. Um, And then kind of like vegetables, seaweeds have the different families have different health benefits. So when you think of vegetables, you think of greens, oranges, you know, purples. Um, Seaweeds have three main um, families. We have the browns, the reds, and the greens. 
and they have different sort of healing benefits. So the the kelps, which belong to the brown family of seaweeds, the two that I sell through my business are kelps. And kelps are unique among seaweeds in their ability to safely clear certain heavy metals, the byproducts of radiation, uh, dioxins from the body. They they have a compound called sodium alginate, and it, it draws and binds to some of these toxins, and it forms an insoluble salt, which is important that it's not re-releasing it into the bloodstream, and then it's safely excreted through the stool. So kelps have um, gotten a lot of sort of fame in the last few years, <laughs> to say the least. And so the kinds of people who would be focused on this is what, cancer patients that are dealing with radiation poisoning or people who are chemically sensitive, or who are the kinds of people that are buying um, and focused on these products? Uh, it definitely seems to be more health-conscious folks. Um, you know, in, in Canada and the U.S., people are sort of just starting to figure out, you know, seaweed and, and things like that. Um, there, In terms of cancer, there's been phenomenal um, research being done right now, uh, particularly a compound called fucoxanthin and fucoidin, two compounds, um, which are richest in the brown seaweed family, have had tremendous, uh, you know, results so far in research with um, the prevention and treatment of cancer. Also, um, seaweeds are good for helping to minimize the effects of, not the effects, but the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. And it's so effect the kelps are so effective with radiation that it's recommended to not take kelp during radiation treatment, but to take it after to clear the excess radiation from the body. Um, Fukushima was really when the radiation clearing effects of kelp came into the limelight, I would say, in North America anyways. So, yeah, and I heard a story about uh, workers who were doing cleanup in the wake of the Hiroshima bombs who were eating miso soup um, for lunch. I think I read it in the Art of Fermentation book, and they, were, they did not get radiation poisoning um, where others did. Anyway, um, I hope we don't have to think about radiation poisoning too much in the watershed that we live, but it is an issue that many watersheds face and um, are, you know, may continue to face. So knowing about seaweeds. Uh, can we talk a little more, since this is an agrarian program, about um, and probably a lot of the people who are, who are listening are interested in seaweed from a compost perspective, and I think probably it's important to reflect on how, how and at, at what time it's appropriate to take seaweed from the side of the ocean um, to use in fertility, or if we're buying kelp, a lot of people buy kelp um, in their potting mix or to feed to animals, just some of the 
um, implications and standard industry practices to be aware of as we make those kinds of decisions? Right, yeah. So, I mean, if you're not living in a coastal area and you're wanting to add um, seaweed to your soil, it is, I mean, where I live, the, the organic farmers will scavenge seaweed. So they, they'll take seaweed that's already been ripped up and washed on shore. So obviously if you're not living on the coast, that's not as much of an option. But I would say steering clear of machine-harvested seaweed uh, because that not only is ripping up the seaweed, but it's also disturbing and potentially uh, the habitat where the seaweed grows and potentially making it not um, viable for seaweed to regrow in those areas. So trying to stick with some more of the hand-harvested um, seaweeds and, yeah, I'm not sure a lot of the sources for, like, using seaweed on farms when you're not right on the coast. I know, I know it has tremendous benefits for vegetables because it will actually, they will absorb the minerals and things that are in the seaweed. And with livestock, I know it helps um, boost up milk production and, and helps boost the immunity and things like that as well. Somebody was telling me that, uh, yeah, dairy cows, especially uh, dairy cows that are eating forage off of soil that's been sprayed, especially that's been sprayed with Roundup, which has a tendency to lock, to bind minerals because it's a chelating chemical, that even um, rotation crops that are, that are coming through fields that have been sprayed with Roundup are losing their mineral quality, their mineral nutrition for dairy cows. Um, and so that feeding kelp is a way that um, nutritionally those animals can can still get access to the to that nutrition. But it's an yeah, area that I, I mean, really want to explore more about. Like we didn't demineralize the land, and then we're like, oh, we'll just take it from the ocean. But that doesn't seem like a solution either. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Leaching, leaching the minerals from the soil with chemical fertilizers and pesticides is clearly not what I think is the right way to go. Uh, but, it, you know, adding, if you have the chance to add seaweed to the soil, it's, it's really going to um, boost its richness and also its nitrogen content as well. And green up the plants. And and with the livestock, not only does it increase milk production, but it gives them a lot more resistance to bacteria and viruses um, and helps boost their immunity in general, too. So. Well, one thing I was, I was recommended was uh, that seaweed that is deposited in, like, a big event, for instance, in a hurricane, and then there's kind of a lot on the beach... That that would be a time that's better to to take because there's at that time when there's a, a big hurricane, then there's basically a whole bunch of seaweed ripped off of rocks and floating around, and so there's it's basically a time when there's a super abundance of that dislodged seaweed habitat, whereas at a time when there's only a small amount of dislodged seaweed habitat being created, like almost like this thatched like an eyebrow on the beach where 
creatures are all living and there's flies and there's beetles and stuff, that then it would be a, a more vulnerable time to remove the seaweed. I don't know if that squares with your understanding of marine ecology, but I'm just trying to like learn in whatever ways I can. If and that was something I was told. No, that's absolutely right, and that's when I teach people here. That's exactly what I tell them. Not only harvesting um, washed-up seaweed for the garden, but also there's edible seaweeds here that grow either way far out or too deep to really get, other than I tell people you go after a big windstorm or a big surf swell, and you can be pretty sure that those seaweeds were washed up within the last day, and so they're still in in edible quality condition, a lot of them. But, yeah, I mean, there's creatures that make their home in the rotting seaweed on the beach, and if if there's none of that there, um, then the ecosystem on the beach is definitely going to suffer. So you've been out there for 15 years in your wetsuit, dancing like a mermaid, like an armed mermaid, and in 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 and out of your of the ocean. What are you seeing change, and what are you um, either mourning or 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 ha- or happy about in terms of um, the changes that you're seeing? Um, are there it, well, more people out there the than there used years, to be, or less? It it really depends. I'm sure farmers can relate to this. It depends on the year. Um, the last, like the last couple years, the, I've really never seen the seaweed look so beautiful. So I feel very fortunate, and I definitely do not take for granted um, that the seaweeds are doing beautifully and amazing. But it's very weather dependent. Um, Particularly for the winged kelp, it's, it doesn't get exposed to the air until the tides start getting really low. Um, so it's not used to having the sun on it. So, for example, this year, the first good low tides of the year when I was out harvesting was um, towards the end of April. And we had a heat wave. It was, you know, for here, is quite hot um, in the upper 20 degrees Celsius, sorry, I'm Canada. That would be probably in the 70s, I guess, Fahrenheit. And it just, basically, it just fried all the seaweed area where I like to harvest because it was so sunny and so hot on those first days of it being exposed to the air. So it pushed me to have to go out quite a bit deeper and sort of search around a little more than usual. But um, like the plants, to it, um, like the land plants, it, the more hot, sunny days in general, that's what's making them grow because they grow through photosynthesis. So there's, there's lots of big sunny days, and the seaweed tends to grow bigger and healthier and things like that. So it's, like I say, I, I don't take it for granted, and I feel very fortunate that the seaweed gardens are in amazing shape out here. Uh, there's the water here that um, we get tested for purity is looks among the best in the world in terms of ocean quality. So again, feeling very fortunate for that. I guess one of the main, there's two main threats 
um, to be worried about, and I did see the effects of one of them was logging up the creek of one of the places uh, that I harvest, and it was they were logging a lot that one winter, maybe four winters ago, and it was one of the wettest winters, so there was a lot of landslides, and that was pushing sediment down the river, and then where the river came out to the ocean, that sediment sediment was smothering a lot of the seaweeds that would normally grow there, because normally it would just be rocky. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, of course, if uh, on the West Coast right now, there's a battle sort of going on between environmentalists, First Nations, federal government, with um, the building a pipeline and having increased tanker traffic. We'd see tankers go from, I think, 36 a year to 408 a year, and an oil spill would be completely catastrophic for the seaweed gardens out here. And what is what is being shipped? What is the increase of shipping about? Well, the um, they want to approve a pipeline from Alberta to Burnaby, which is essentially Vancouver, which is the biggest city in BC, and that would be bitumen, which is like raw, thick oil, and then it would be being shipped by super tankers to China. So the the municipalities and the the provincial government of BC is against it but the federal government which runs the like the country's government has approved it um, it's kind of our it's turning into our version of standing rock it's going to get it's going to get pretty intense here um, with that so now we have very little oil moving along our coast um, there's been a moratorium for ever on oil exploration, anything like that, so it hasn't been a significant worry, um, but it could become a worry. And our waters here are known as among the stormiest and nastiest in the, in the fall and the winter, so um, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a concern for, for the coast here, so it's... Yeah. So if people want to learn more about seaweed and seaweed harvesting and seaweed ecology and marine stewardship and your coast, what are some places you would send them to learn? Um, well, there's I'd a really send cool magazine in Vancouver that <laughs> I do low tide beach walks, I do kelp forest snorkel tours, I do um, all day workshops. Um, there's some great information on my website uh, for books, resources, things like that. Um, but, you know, check the area that's closest to you, check out if there's anyone doing seaweed and if they're willing to teach about it. There's not that many seaweed people in, uh, in Canada and the U.S., but the few of us there are are very passionate. I've, I've heard good things about the Mendocino seaweed company and I'd like to go visit them myself. I haven't been down there but I've seen some of the good work they've been doing. So, And I would love to highlight the work of the Maine Seaweed Council which puts out a sustainable harvesting guide and offers um, pretty interesting 
uh, website of resources around marine health and um, their aspirations for having a sustainably managed seaweed commons in the Gulf of Maine. Um, I really am so thankful for you to join us here on the show. If there's any last thing you want to transmit, um, you have 25 seconds. And otherwise, um, I have an announcement, so maybe you go first. Well, I'd just like to say, yeah, if if um, the more I can inspire people about seaweed and just how beautiful and amazing they are and how healthy they are, then hopefully that can inspire people to do their part to help protect the ocean that they live in. I feel inspired by it for sure, and I think we all do, and I thank you so much. I want to um, remind everyone that we have now posted on the Internet the videos from the Hourland 2 Symposium that was in New Mexico talking about issues of water, water sharing, aspekias, commons, public trust, um, and there's really great stuff there. It'll take you hours and hours and hours to listen to it all, um, but it'll be fun. So... Thank you so much to Amanda, and thank you to all of you, and talk to you next week. Thanks for having me, and if anyone wants more info, Dakini Tidal Wilds is my website, and there's lots of fun pictures. D-A-K-I-N-I, Tidal Wilds. Bye-bye. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Wrapped around us and covered our hearts.